What's your name? Zach Hampel. What's your occupation? I have contact cards that I've made that say professional baseball nerd at the top. What's really your job? Catching baseballs at major league stadiums and occasionally minor league stadiums, making YouTube videos, writing about baseball, taking people to games. Only in America can Zach Hampel get paid to be a baseball nerd. Coming up on today's edition of Life Around the Seams, we find out how it is that some people go to a game and hope to get one ball, and some people are lucky enough to get multiple balls. But Zach Hampel has obtained over 10,000 baseballs in his life, and somehow this is how he pays his bills. This is Life Around the Seams. Former Major League pitcher Jim Bouton once wrote, You spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out, it was the other way around all the time. Welcome to Life Around the Scenes, a podcast about baseball people who have interesting stories from between the lines, and sometimes even more interesting stories outside the lines. Here's your host, Josh Sushan. All right, Zach. Welcome to Albuquerque, New Mexico in beautiful Isotopes Park. Thank you. This place really is spectacular. All right, so let's get into this for uh, some of the details. Over 53 major league stadiums, which means a lot that are no longer in use. Over 10,000 baseballs. Mike Trout's first major league home run. Alex Rodriguez's 3,000th hit. A ton more very legendary balls. You've gotten them in multiple countries. You have gotten them in minor league parks, major league ballparks. Let's go back to close to the beginning. Tell us how far did you get as a baseball player yourself? I played my whole life up into college, a little bit of Division Three baseball, so nothing really to brag about. But, for the record, I would like to say that I retired with a 429 batting average. I went 6 for 14 in my college career. At what college? Guilford College in North Carolina. What would you say would be the highlight of your baseball playing career? Humble brag time. Maybe turning double plays with Tony Womack in the fall season of Guilford College Baseball. He played there and came back and worked out with the team and I was an infielder and he was an infielder and just sort of being one-on-one -on -one with a big leaguer out on the field was pretty awesome. That is sound really awesome. All right, what was the first time that you ever went to a Major League Baseball stadium? Where is it? How old are you? Who takes you? I was six years old. It was bat day at Yankee Stadium. I am a native New Yorker and still live there in fact and I was with my dad. And I didn't even know that there was such a thing as batting practice at the time. So we aimed to get there in time for first pitch. Of course, we hit traffic and got lost on the way. This was way before the internet and GPS. So we arrived, I think, maybe in the second or third inning. We had seats way at the top of the upper deck. And I was that annoying kid standing on my seat, holding my glove in the air, screaming, hit it here, hit it here. <laughs> and nobody hit it here. So I went home empty-handed that day 
and every other day for the next six years of going to games. But granted, nobody in my family gives a damn about baseball, so at best I'd be able to go to two or three games a year. And I, I know how it feels to not catch a ball and how disappointing that is. When was the first time that you got a baseball? How'd you get it? Where were you? I was 12 years old. I was at Shea Stadium. And I had finally figured out about batting practice because I was subscribed at the time to Beckett Baseball Card oh, Monthly. Oh, yes. Oh, I was a was subscriber I as well. Oh, my goodness. And I remember the May 1990 issue had Donnie Baseball on the cover with his eye black and getting ready to pounce on a ground ball. And there was an article in the magazine that talked about how to maximize your day at the ballpark and get the most out of it. And one thing it mentioned was attend batting practice. And I just still remember seeing those three little words on that list. And I had to ask some older baseball friends, what's batting practice? I mean, this is how much I knew at the time. And they told me, like, oh, the players warm up, and you can go early and watch them and maybe catch a ball and this and that. So I told my parents, hey, we, we got to go early to batting practice. And it was one of those discussions, like, you want us to show up at what time? Right. And I'm like, no, 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 really, like, we have to do it. So it took a lot of convincing, but they took me early, and at my first BP ever, I got two baseballs. They were both tossed up by players on the Mets. I don't remember who, unfortunately, but I was out near the right field corner, foul territory, Shea Stadium, and it didn't require much athletic skill to catch them, but I was so pumped up at the time. And my dad always referred to that moment of me getting my first ball as if it were a baby shark tasting blood for the first time. <laughs> so when did you go from, okay, I'm going to a few games, I've learned about this thing called batting practice, to I'm going to go on a regular basis and start getting a lot of baseballs on a regular basis? When I was 14, the 1992 season was just getting underway. And I'd already been riding the subway to and from school by myself in New York City, starting at the age of 12. So it was tough but not impossible to convince my parents that they should let me go to Major League Baseball games by myself. Are you going solo? Yeah. Okay. I didn't really have any friends at that time. No siblings. My parents didn't care about baseball. So it was just me doing it. And they let me go. Shea Stadium, Yankee Stadium, both an hour or less on the subway from where I lived in Manhattan. And I went all the time. I mean every game except for the summer when I went off to sleepaway camp and then really missed being able to go to games. So 1992, I went to about 80 games that year, having gone to only a handful the previous years. And I got over 100 baseballs just that year alone. That's when things really took off for me. Were all of these in batting practice, or what was the first time you got a home run ball? My first home run was in 1992. It was Mike Stanley's first home run of the season. He was the Yankees catcher. And it may be hard for some people to believe, but Yankee Stadium used to be somewhat of a ghost town. Before they went on their huge run in the late 90s, weeknight games would draw 13,000 people. And they didn't even sell outfield tickets most of the time. They'd sell them into foul territory and then just sort of have a cutoff line. So if you hung out toward the end of where all the fans were clustered up, and a ball was hit into the empty seats, you could run and get it. And that's how I got my first home run. But most of the balls that year were in batting practice. I, I got some foul balls at Shea Stadium. The loge level, the second deck behind home plate, I learned was a pretty good spot. When batters would just get a little piece and swing a little too low, they'd, they'd tip it back and it would shoot into the stands. So 
I really didn't know what I was doing, but I figured it out here and there as it went along. So I'm going to bounce around a little bit chronologically, but uh, one thing that I do want to talk to you about, because wh what I love about your stories, it reminds me a lot of mine. So I grew up in the Bay Area, so I had A's games and Giants games. I primarily went to A's games. For me, it was more about getting autographs than about ball hawking, but we got our share of balls too. I didn't come anywhere close to 10,000. I think I maybe got 20 to 25 all during batting practice. Hey, double digits. Yeah, I'm definitely in double digits. Um, <laughs> so on your website, ZachHampel.com, Z-A-C-K Hampel.com, you mentioned about um, how it's impossible to know who has the record for most baseballs, but that there's a person from the Bay Area who claimed to have over 7,000 balls. Because I grew up in the Bay Area, I'm curious, do you know anything about his name or what he was like? Because I'm wondering if it's the same person who I'm thinking about from my childhood. Do you know anything about this guy other than just some dude? Yes, that fan's name is Alex Patino. He's actually no longer living. Um... But he, he definitely got thousands. He'd been around for a long time. And at the time when I heard that number of 7,000, which may or may not have been accurate, I did not have that many myself. But then ultimately I surpassed the total that I had heard bounced around. Um, a lot of the older guys who've done this haven't kept an exact count. And they haven't kept that many baseballs. They've given them away or played with them or sold them. So even if you say, well let's see them all, they don't really have much to show for it, which is fine. I mean, it's, it's great when people are generous and give them away. I've given away thousands of baseballs myself, so I would not be able to present somebody with 10,000 balls if Guinness World Records said, well, okay, let's see them, prove it. Yeah. So it's, it's sort of murky. There's no official scorekeeper for ball hawking. Right. It's a very small and nerdy community, and... <laughs> We kind of keep track of ourselves. But all the guys who've snagged thousands of baseballs know each other or know of each other. So, so yeah. the guy that I was thinking of is not Alex Patino. The guy that I'm thinking about, I just remember that his name was Mike. I don't remember his last name. But Mike and this other guy, Jay, had developed this incredible system at the old Coliseum before it was renovated. It, the, the pavilion, the outfield sections look a lot like Dodger Stadium in that they're not right up against the fence. So there's this gap and there's these stairs. And Mike and Jay perfected where they would slide down the railing on their glove. Their feet would never touch the steps. So they would fly down. And you look at old videos from the late 80s, Canseco and McGuire hitting home runs, and you just see this blur of just these two dudes flying down the rails. And Dave Henderson, may he rest in peace, nicknamed them the Flyboys. Because they flew down the steps, and those guys were gods to me. Like, I wanted to be like them. Mike was a good-looking dude, long hair. As soon as he got to the park, he took his shirt off. Like, all the girls liked him and everything. And I, I don't know what happened to Mike. I know that he did sell a lot of his balls because I'd sell balls for $5 because I wanted a hamburger because I was hungry or something. So I know that there was this community in Oakland, and... It's one of my favorite just childhood memories is like, oh, my God, this guy Mike was just a god. And I remember he got three home runs, 1988, Game 3, American League Championship Series, A's against the Red Sox. The A's hit four. One went to right. The three that went to left field, he got all three. I know of one of these guys, Jay. Jay. Jay Didion. Jay Didion, yes. Yes. He's the one, I believe, who got the three home runs. And I actually interviewed him really for my last book, which is called The Baseball, Okay. which talks all about the ball itself, how it's made, all the controversies, stunts that have been done by balls. There's a whole chapter called Death by Baseball. 
etc. And there's a huge section in the back that teaches people how to snag baseballs at games. And within that section, I interviewed who I determined to be the top 10 ball hawks of all time. And Jay made the cut. Jay always wore an Orioles starter jacket. I've run into him a few times in recent years. Really? Where's he at now? I'm not even sure. Um, I saw him in Minnesota last year. Uh, I think I've seen him in Seattle. I'm not sure where he lives. Just he might hear this and be mad at me, but we're still sort of barely in touch a little bit. Well, I could text him right now and probably hear back in 20 minutes. Well, I hope that he hears this and contacts me because I haven't seen him since I was about 15 years old. And I remember seeing him at spring training and me, my dad, and him are hanging out and watching a game in spring training. And yeah, Mike and Jay, those guys were legends at the Oakland Alameda County Coliseum. Yeah, and I'll tell you a quick funny story about Jay from Minnesota last year, and he's probably a generation older than me. We were actually in foul territory, which is kind of funny for both of us because we prefer to catch home runs, but we were on the third base side early in the game, and I was wandering sort of through an empty row, looking at the field, thinking where I want to sit, and I plopped my bag down, and who do I see but Jay sitting right there with his glove. And I said to him, oh, I'm sorry, I, I don't want to get in your way. He looks at me sort of with a little smirk and goes, don't worry, you won't. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh, some trash talk. Right. I like it. <laughs> Describe amongst serious ball hawks. Is it friendly? Is it competitive? Is it trash talking? Is it, no, this is my section. Stay away. What's it usually like? All of the above. Just like out in the regular world, you know, there's all sorts of personalities. The same is true for ball hawking. And I feel like every major league stadium has at least one and sometimes a whole bunch of regulars who are out there all the time and, you know, like 10% of the fans will catch 90% of the balls or, you know, whatever, something like that. And there's a different vibe at every stadium. And, you know, people know me wherever I go and in some places I feel really welcomed and people see seem generally happy to see me and they'll even back away and give me space and it's like, oh no, like, you know, you've been doing this for so long, you go wherever you want and in other places guys are very territorial and some people seem to enjoy standing right near me because they want to rob me of one. Right. But it's not, it's not physical or mean, but um, it, it feels frantic in some places and very laid back and more friendly in others and... I enjoy that. I I love having gotten to meet so many people, and I've made so many friends doing this. So, yeah, it's it's a wonderful community. So, this is not about me. This is about you, but I do want to share one other story. At Old Candlestick Park, so it used to be because the 49ers and Giants shared the stadium that if you hit a home run over the fence in left field, you know, it was a chain link fence, and there was like this grass area, because that's basically the end zone, and then there's some concrete, and then the seats are way back there. So, there's one time I'm going to a game, and I'm sitting in the first row, and I see a ball, and I jump down, and I'm running for it. And I'm basically camping underneath it, right? Because I was the first one down. And just as I'm about to get it, some Somebody shoves me in the back, and I basically do a face plant, and the ball ends up over, and so somebody else gets it. So you mentioned the different rivalries. Candlestick back in the day was intense. It was a, it was a, um, it was not a family friendly place. I mean, there was some pretty ugly stuff that happened, which was kind of part of the charm, but also one of the great reasons why they got rid of it, plus the weather. So yeah, you know, in Oakland, it was kind of like okay. You know, mostly everyone was was getting along, mostly because they were high. <laughs> and then, and then <laughs> the truth Fran revealed. <laughs> and then in San Francisco, it was uh, yeah, I got shoved down, and uh, that's my biggest memory about trying to ball hawk in San Francisco at Candlestick Park. Yeah, I remember seeing some of those old highlights of fans kind of sprinting toward the field, 
from way, way back, and it, it looked pretty rowdy out there. And even at AT&T Park in recent years, it, it has been rowdy. It's, I'd, say, I'd say people are most aggressive going for baseballs in San Francisco currently than any other stadium. People at Yankee Stadium overall, I think, get the award for being most hostile just in terms of attitude. And I don't think Yankee fans would deny that or feel insulted. They'd be like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Philadelphia <laughs> Get fans out of our might house. say, like, wait a minute, what about us? Yeah. Okay, so when did you – so describe – okay, so you're going to games, you're taking the subway, you're getting a whole lot of balls every year, and then you go away to summer camp, um, and then you go away to college to play a little bit of Division uh, three baseball, as you said. When did this sort of start to take on a life of its own where it's like, okay, I'm not – I'm not just going to school, but I'm doing all these other things and it's becoming a bigger part of my life. So I got my thousandth ball right before I headed off to college. And I thought I was going to wind this down at that point. Retire? I don't know. I mean, the way I see it is I'm always going to love baseball. So I'm always going to want to go to games. And if I'm going to a game, I might as well bring my glove and go early and try to catch some balls. But, you know, who knows how many games I'll end up going to. I you know, just even looking ahead now, I've, I've been averaging going to more than 100 major league games a year for the last seven years. Wow. I can't maintain that pace forever. But my first year in college, I only went to 10 games, which was far fewer than I'd been to previously. But then after my freshman year in college, I had a summer job lined up with some environmental agency or something like that. It fell through, and suddenly I had nothing to do for the summer. And my dad especially was not one of those people that would just let his kids sit around doing nothing for several months. So we had a long talk, a nine-hour drive. They came and picked me up at college and drove back to New York City from Greensboro. And we had a whole talk in the car about what are you going to do? And we all sort of together came up with the idea of me writing a book teaching people how to catch baseballs. And I had not even declared English as my college major at that point, but my dad was a writer. And he told me that he'd help me gather up some ideas and prepare an outline. But he said, you're going to do all the writing by yourself. He said, I'll help you edit. I'll show the book to my literary agent. She may reject it, but you know, I'll help you get started in the right direction. If you want to do that and really be serious about that over the summer, then go for it. And that's what happened. And that book came out a year and a half later during my junior year of college. It's called How to Snag Major League Baseballs. Where was your go-to place to sit down and actually write? In my bedroom at home in New York City. Okay. Nothing fancy. And it's not a long book, and looking back on it, it's a really bad book, and it's out of print, and I'm glad. It's kind <laughs> okay. of embarrassing, but at the time, it was, it was pretty cool. You know, like a college student gets a book deal, this book is out there, and it generated a ton of publicity because it's a media-friendly hobby. And then again, I think there was the whole notion of this young guy wrote this book. So I made the rounds on TV and a million articles written, and that's really when things started taking off. And there have been several things since then that have continued to propel me in, through this crazy baseball journey. And there have been several times when I thought, okay, you know, I think I've reached the pinnacle. I don't, I don't know what more I could do. But then there have also been times where it's like, as big as this is, I still feel like there's more, and that's how I'm feeling right now. So it's really been an insane journey. So, again, I'm going to bounce around a little bit, but as we talk about this insane journey, when did it go from, all right, I wrote a book as a college student, and I'm still collecting you know, these baseballs, to 
I can actually monetize this. I don't want to get too much into your business. That's your business. But nonetheless, this is your primary this is your primary job. So how did you make that transition to like, okay, I'm going to monetize this enough in order to pay my bills and allow me to travel to these different ballparks? So I wrote my second book, which came out in 2007, Watching Baseball Smarter. And that did really well. And I'm actually still earning royalties from that book 11 years later. That's a rarity. Yes, it is. Congratulations. Thank you. But I still didn't think of this as a full-time thing. It really didn't change in terms of like, wow, I can do this full-time until a couple of years ago, actually, when YouTube became a thing for me. And YouTube became a thing really because of A-Rod. Right. I snagged his 3,000th hit which was a home run at Yankee Stadium. And the amount of attention I got from that is certainly not all positive. There was, a, there was a lot of pretty rough scrutiny as well. But the amount of attention that I received from that one moment of snagging that ball completely dwarfed everything that had come my way in life up until that point. Let's talk a little bit more about that, that moment because I know I wanted to talk about it anyways. Uh, tell us... What was your plan going into it? And tell us how you were able to execute this. And obviously you need a little bit of luck or a lot of luck. Uh, tell us how you put yourself in the position to get that baseball. Sure. And then after I tell you that, I can explain how that helped me transition into all this yeah. YouTube stuff. Yeah. So getting the A-Rod ball. Well, I was in right field at Yankee Stadium where I usually sit when I'm there. And I remember seeing my mom right before I headed off to the game and I just told her I was like you know how many career hits A-Rod has right now and she shook her head because she doesn't follow baseball and I said 2,999 and her eyes lit up and I was like just imagine if I get that ball and she just kind of shrugged and said good luck and off I went to the stadium anyway first inning Justin Verlander's on the hill and you know, I felt like I had a good chance in right field, even though A-Rod is a right-handed batter, because he goes oppo a lot, and of course the short porch at Yankee Stadium is very easy for righties or lefties to hit balls there. Guys go oppo all the time. So you consciously decided, I'm, I'm betting on a oppo, oppo taco here. Yeah, and, and also, at that point in the season, it was, it was the middle of June, A-Rod had 75 hits on the season, and 15 of them were home runs. So one out of five hits were home runs. So I, I already figured, well, there's a 20% chance that his 3,000th hit is going to be a home run. And then I figured, I guess, if it's a home run, there's a 50-50 chance that it's going to come out to right field because he, he hit a lot of balls that way. So already I'm thinking, there's a 1 in 10 chance that his 3,000th hit is going to be a home run in my general vicinity. And I feel like it's easier to pinpoint a guy going oppo than pulling a ball in the sense that if A-Rod pulls one, he might yank it way down the left field foul line. He might hit it 470 feet to left center field. There's this huge area where the ball could land. But if he's going to go oppo, he's not hitting it 470 feet. It's going to be a ball that doesn't clear the outfield wall by that much. He usually doesn't flare them down the line. So I'm already thinking if he goes oppo, it's probably going to come somewhere out in my direction. So people were talking about, oh, the odds must have been like one in a million. And I'm like, maybe I'm dumb. But like, I actually thought I had a 
pretty decent chance of being near the ball. And Verlander... When he, when he hit it? Verlander... Well, okay, I'll take you back a moment to not too long before that. A-Rod hit one... I think he either tied or passed Willie Mays on the, on the career home run list which came right in my direction and then tailed away and fell a little short. And, like, I took sort of a bad route through the seats. There's railings. It's crowded. And I I didn't quite position myself right for that one. And I felt bad that I didn't get it. And when he sent that 3,000th hit flying in my direction, I mean, I knew from the second he hit it, I was like, oh, my God, here it comes. Don't mess it up. I might not have used the word messed in my (laughs) mind. But I'd been out there for batting practice. And the Tigers had all these righties going oppo, you know, especially Miguel Cabrera. And the balls were really carrying. And I just, I told myself, you know, if A-Rod hits one out here, stay back. Don't, don't run forward. Because the temptation is to move forward so you don't get pushed from behind. And so he hit it and I tried to back up from the third row to the fourth and then from the fourth to the fifth. And I was going to reach up and catch it. But there was this just wall of people coming down the stairs pushing not pushing me specifically, but everybody was just trying to go forward to the ball. So I tried to back up, and I couldn't. I tried to jump, and it went several feet over my glove. And I just thought I had lost the opportunity of a lifetime. There was such a mosh pit right behind me. I mean, it was like a a fumble in the Super Bowl. People were just aggressively jumping and scrambling. You couldn't even see the ground on the spot where the ball landed. And I just kind of gave up, and I'm like, well, I'm not jumping in there. So I just kind of looked down at my feet where the ground was clear, and the ball was touching my sneaker, sitting on the step, and nobody else saw it. (laughs) I don't know what the hell happened, but I reached down and grabbed it, and watching the replays many times since then, there was one other guy who saw the ball. He was in the front row, uh, a heavier individual, so he wasn't able to move that fast. He was just sort of rounding from the first row up onto the stairs while I was reaching down in the fourth row on the stairs to pick it up. So, you know, he was maybe a couple seconds away from getting it, but nobody even saw it. And I grabbed the ball and did the stupidest thing possible. I held it up in the air, right? You should clutch it against your That was chest. about to be my next question. I mean, I, trying to rip it away from you. Yeah. I had the ball, and all these other people are still jumping on top of each other. They didn't even know that I had it. And I'm just, I, I was more stunned than excited. I just couldn't even believe it. It seemed fake to me. It seemed, it almost seemed scripted. It seemed like I was dreaming. And no joke, I had a hard time believing that it was reality for a solid week after that. I was almost afraid to go to bed every night because I thought I was going to wake up and realize that it it was a dream. And I dream about catching baseballs all the time. You know, it's like I'm in an empty outfield. They're raining down. I'm getting like 30 <laughs> balls. And then I wake up and I'm like, ah, oh, where are all those baseballs? And I thought that was going to be the situation with A-Rod. It was just beyond crazy. And then speaking of beyond crazy, the idea of you're talking with the Yankees about getting the ball back to Alex and what they're going to do for you and what you're going to do for them. Explain how that all went down. I was surrounded by stadium personnel within 
I don't know, maybe 20 seconds of getting the ball. There were security guards, there were police officers, there were supervisors, there were other people that I didn't even know existed that worked there, and they wanted to get me out of the seats as quickly as possible. And I'm like, nope, I'm going to just stand right here and enjoy the moment and take selfies with people. <laughs> so they were already probably like, wow, this guy is unhinged. But this was the biggest moment of my life, and I just wanted to soak it in. And eventually they got me out of there and... I mean, just even walking me up the stairs to the concourse, there were, I think, five reporters holding voice recorders and their iPhones asking me questions. Can you spell your name? And how old are you? And do you live in New York? And what are you going to do with the ball? And security is, is hurrying me along, and the reporters are chasing after me, and fans are chasing after I mean, it was just so crazy. And I loved it, but it was so crazy. And they finally got me through the concourse into this little unmarked door that went into this quiet hallway, got into an elevator, went all the way down to the lowest level of the stadium, which at Yankee Stadium is called the triple zero level. And it's just where all the players and staff and all that stuff happens, so fans don't get to see it. Elevator opens up, and it's just this white cinder block hallway, and I could see a parking garage underground way off in the distance, and I thought, oh my god, this is where the Yankees disappear, people. <laughs> right. <laughs> And I was led into this office of the head of Yankees security, this guy that I later learned used to be a cop, and then he was George Steinbrenner's personal bodyguard for 15 years. The whole time you're holding on, hold on to the baseball, right? I am like, yeah. Okay. I mean, no one's trying to steal it from me, but I'm just like, I have a death grip on it, you right. know? And I get into this guy's office. I'd, I'd seen him but never met him, and he congratulated me on getting the ball, and, but we kind of got down to business did quickly. he know of you? Did he know that you were um, I'm not known sure. for getting a lot of balls? I'm not sure how much he knew at that point because he, he wouldn't have had that much time to figure things out. Because okay. it was probably you know five or ten minutes from the time I got the ball to when I saw him. And he obviously wanted the ball and started offering me things that the Yankees would do for me and give me and then said, you know, and if there's anything else that you want, let me know, but we'd love to get this from you. And, I mean, he offered a lot of stuff, you know, signed bats and balls and jerseys and we'll do a press conference with you and A-Rod and we'll put you on TV and if you want tickets. And, and I just said, you know, I, I appreciate all of that, but no offense, there's nothing that you could offer me that would be worth more to me than the ball itself. So I intend to keep it. And he kind of shrugged. He said, well, if that's your decision, you know, I respect that. But, you know, we just had a long conversation. He, and ultimately, he took me to an authenticator down on the triple zero level of the stadium. He said, you know, even if you are going to keep it, like, I'm sure you'd like to have the ball authenticated. Yes. So that was a little scary because they had to take the ball out of my possession while I waited in the concourse, and I guess they took it into the clubhouse and looked at it under ultraviolet light because it had secret invisible ink stamps, and you know they verified that it was indeed the ball. And I knew that they weren't trying to pull some switcheroo and give me a fake one back. There was a pretty distinctive gash on the ball from where it must have clipped the edge of a concrete step, and that gash was on the ball that they you know, gave back to me after they authenticated I mean, it was definitely the ball. The Yankees aren't going to pull shenanigans but the thought crossed my mind and you know I spent about an hour with this guy he took me all around the stadium and ultimately he uh, he told me to keep in touch and he advised me to go home and put the ball in a safe place and I was like well I know it would be smart for me to leave the stadium but I just need to calm down right now and the way that I'm going to calm down is by going back to my seat and watching some Major League Baseball 
And he tried to talk me out of that. And I was like, look, I know you're doing your job. I know this is kind of crazy, but I, I got to do this. I got to enjoy being at the stadium on the biggest night of my life. So if you can get extra security there, whatever you need to do, but I have to go back out there and watch baseball. And I did, and people in the seats were kind of stunned to see me reappear, and they were asking, do you have the ball? Do you have the ball? And I just kind of shrugged. My best friend showed up an inning later. It's probably mid-game at this point. And I pulled the ball out of my bag and just started taking pictures with it. And people were like, what is going on? Is this guy crazy? Yeah. And so by the end, I guess I should backtrack just probably 20 minutes before I even went out to my seat. This head of security, his name was Eddie Fastook. He told me that Randy Levine, the Yankees president, wanted to meet with me. And I told him, I was like, tell Mr. Levine I really appreciate that and I'd be happy to talk to him, but I just need to like go watch baseball, clear my head, relax a little bit, so maybe later in the game. I ended up meeting the Yankees president after the game, went up to his office on the suite level. My friend came with me, and at that point, Randy knew who I was. He'd done his research. He found out that I had been working for years with a baseball charity called Pitch In for Baseball. Provides baseball and softball equipment to underprivileged kids and communities all over the world. And Randy basically said, if it would help you decide what to do with the ball, the Yankees would consider making a sizable donation to the charity. And that's when a light bulb went off in my head and I was like, okay, you know what, I think I'm going to do that. I'd already tweeted out earlier in the game that I was keeping it, and that tweet got 4,000 retweets, and half of them were you know, really angry. People were pissed at me for keeping the ball, and the other half of people were like, you know, good, don't give it to A-Rod, he doesn't deserve it, and sell the ball and make a lot of money. So it was nuts. Um, I was getting about 100 Twitter notifications per minute wow. that whole weekend after getting the ball. And evidently there were some death threats in there. I had friends telling me, just stay off Twitter. It's not going to do you any good. And I told Randy, I was like, look, that's a great offer. I need to think about it. I'm going to take this ball home. Enjoy having it over the weekend. It was a Friday night when I got the ball. He gave me his cell phone number and his email. He said, keep in touch. And we, ch we, we communicated throughout the weekend. And I talked to the head of the charity and eventually got the two of them together. And we all had a, a meeting after the weekend. And I made an agreement then pretty soon after getting the ball that I was going to give it to A-Rod and the Yankees were going to donate $150,000 to the charity. But by the time that was all agreed, the Yankees had left on an eight-day road trip. And the Yankees wanted me to wait to give it to A-Rod when the, when the team was back and they could have a press conference. And they told me that I wasn't allowed to say anything about the press conference because they wanted to announce it. So here I was. I decided to do something nice for charity. I was going to give the ball back, but I couldn't tell anybody. And in the meantime, I was getting dragged through the mud by the media. There was an article that Forbes put out, which was titled something like, Memorabilia Leeches Are Ruining the Sport. And it was basically an article about me and how greedy and selfish and awful I was. And I, I mean, I had already agreed to give the, it was, it was, it was like that. And then all the negative articles prompted fans to be negative, and it was, it was not a happy time in my life, and it should have been. It was probably the worst couple of weeks of my life was having that ball. It's like lottery winners talk about how it's the worst thing that ever happened, and it was kind of like that. And I definitely brought on some of the negativity myself because I had tweeted something 
derogatory about A-Rod the day before I got the ball. <laughs> okay. And then that got retweeted over 100 times, and that kind of set the tone. And it, it was really an ugly, ugly time. Once the Yankees come back home and you give the ball to A-Rod and you have the press conference, how much did that sort of um, help make the negative two weeks dissipate a little? It didn't help that much because if you, if you take all the publicity that came as a result of getting the ball, probably like 98% of it was in the first day or two or three after getting it, where it's like, here's this guy who's rude and didn't give A-Rod the ball and he's a jerk and he knocks down kids, which is not true, but that became the narrative somehow. Um, and then there just, there wasn't a ton of follow-up once the whole thing actually happened. Were you, so, yeah. were you tempted to say, you know what, I've had my 15 minutes, that's enough, uh, I, I don't need this anymore, I don't need to, to get balls anymore, like, I'm, I'm, it's time to move on? I definitely thought about walking away from it at that point. I even questioned myself for months afterward, if I had it to do all over again, would I have picked that baseball up off the ground? That, that's how crappy it was that I actually almost wished that it hadn't happened. But ultimately, I'm glad it happened. I learned a lot. I became stronger as a person. And it really launched what has now become my full-time career. Yeah, so let's get into this about how, how it launched it, how you were able to start making videos onto YouTube, and how this became crazy <laughs> career. Yeah, well, like I said earlier, the amount of attention that I got from the A-Rod ball was just astounding. And... I had already done a few videos at stadiums for my YouTube channel. I started the channel back in 2007, I think, really just because I wanted to post some of my own interviews that I'd done on TV and then send the links to family and friends so they could watch it. And then, of course, I got copyright strikes against me on YouTube, like, you can't post like TV. And I'm like, why? I'm the one on the TV show. Why can't I post it? But that's not how it works. So I really didn't do much with my channel. I had a few videos up. I had a friend who was a videographer, and we did a few videos. But they would get anywhere from a few hundred views to a few thousand views, nothing crazy. There was a little bump in, in viewership after the A-Rod thing, but I wasn't putting out any new content. So then I got the A-Rod ball in 2015. Early in 2016, my friend says, hey, we should do a few more videos. And I'm like, all right. And I still hadn't monetized my channel, wasn't thinking about making money. We just did like a four-day trip to Arlington, Texas, Oakland, Seattle. Like, you know, the videos were pretty good. Put them up on my channel and suddenly they were getting thousands of views. Again, not crazy, but it was a significant jump above the hundreds of views that they might have gotten. And I was like... Especially if you're not backed by NBC or CNN, you know, for, yeah. for just a dude. That's a lot of views. Yep. And I remember one of the videos got 7,000 views in the first 24 hours. I remember that. And I was just like, oh my God, that's, that's a lot of views. And I said to him, I was like, we should go on a few more trips and do more videos. So we, we did that here and there throughout the 2016 season. The videos did pretty well. Still wasn't even monetized on my channel. And I had a friend in New York tell me that I, I needed to monetize and I didn't even know how to do that and she helped me figure it out. I had about a million views on my channel before I was even monetized. Wow. It wasn't, I, I, just, I assumed you had to get so many views to even make a little bit of money that it wasn't worth it. I was just doing this for fun. Just like I had blogged about 
pretty much every game I went to for nearly a decade. Didn't make any money from that. But I just loved sharing my experiences and taking people along for the ride and chronicling my own adventures. So that's what YouTube was going to be. But then I monetized, and then I started getting money from Google every month. Google owns YouTube, and I was basically allowing them to put ads on the videos, and then I get money from the ad revenue. And I realized then that if I really just made this my focus in life, that it could turn into a full-time thing. I sensed in that 2016 season, and at the start of that season, I had about 2,000 subscribers on YouTube. And by the end of the season, I had about 60,000. And 2017 was the first year that I was like, I'm doing this full-time and going to games all the time with my videographer. This is my mission in life. Quick side story. Before you decide that, what else were you doing to pay the bills? I was working on and off at my family's bookstore in New York City. It's, it's the oldest independent bookstore in the city. It's six floors. You know, it's a pretty big place and there's a lot to do there. So I was doing that and I just kind of had random jobs. I wrote for minor league baseball for three years. I worked as a baseball instructor for a summer. Um, you worked for a minor league team in Boise? Yeah, that was after high school. I was an intern, so I didn't get paid for that. But okay. I've, I've had, I mean, it seems like half the jobs that I've ever done were baseball related, but I had random office jobs too. I was a production assistant for a talk show on CBS for a while. And I just, I don't know, I wasn't really thrilled with any of it. It was just like, I'm doing this because I need to do something, but I wasn't passionate about it. And I just felt like my energy and enthusiasm and talents were being wasted in the world. When did people start paying you money to go to the game with them in hopes of getting a ball with them? I started doing that in 2007 when my second book came out. I called it Watch With Zach. And I guaranteed that people would get at least one ball or I'd give them a full refund or do another game for free. Because I personally have not been shut out at a major league game since 1993, so more than 1,400 games. Where That's Ripken-esque. Yeah. That is Ripken-esque. I, I appreciate the comparison. He is my all-time favorite player. Okay. So, yeah, Watch With Zach became a thing, and that was also how I'd make some money here and there. It was, you know, it was just like a nice little supplement to my income. But Who would be the normal clientele for Watch With Zach? There's usually at least one kid involved and one parent involved, but I've done games... I've done more than 50 of these games since I started doing this and a lot in the last few years because I've done, I did a few for YouTube and then other people, you know, it's like it sort of advertises itself. Right. So it's really picked up, but I've done games where it's just grown-ups and they're less interested in catching balls and just more interested in hanging out and talking baseball, but there are usually kids involved. I did a Watch With Zach game in San Diego recently where there were 19 kids and a bunch of parents. It was a just tremendous group. Did you have to guarantee 19 balls, one for every kid? No, I, I make that clear. I, I basically say you can bring as many people as you want, but I only guarantee one ball. But in, in the Watch With Zach games, I think I've averaged a, uh, over 10 balls per game between myself and the people that I go with. In that game in San Diego, we actually combined to snag 43 balls. 43. 43. We got in nice and early for batting practice. They got their money's worth. Oh, yeah. It was really fun. It was a kid's 12th birthday, and he didn't even know that I was going to be there. It was a surprise for him. 
and I was secretly texting the dad and he's like tell me when you're three minutes away and I did and then he lined up all the kids for a group photo and he even knew which way to face them so I could sneak in from behind I just kind of jumped in and they were like oh my god Zach Hample what are you doing here and I'm like what's up guys we're hanging out here for the day and uh, yeah it was it was pretty fun to orchestrate that so that's now become a big part of it but yeah with the whole YouTube stuff the numbers just took off and by the end of the 2017 season I had about 200,000 subscribers and my top video in 24 hours got 170,000 views and I have four or five videos at this point that have over a million and it's just amazing to get paid to go to baseball games and do videos and it was something that I was doing for free just because it was fun and it's still fun but now this is what I do, so I, I can't believe it. What a time to be alive. What, what, what a country. So in, in this trip, you were in Denver yesterday at Coors Field? Yeah, the last two days. Okay, so you're at Coors Field the last two days. You're in Albuquerque, New Mexico today as, as we film this. So uh, without giving away too much, since you don't want to give away the secrets before they get posted, when you go into a city, whether it's Denver, Albuquerque, what are you looking to do, and how hard is it to keep coming up with, I shouldn't do a double-barrel question, what is it that you're looking to do? Now I have to think about the video as much as I do catching baseballs, but I am still a collector at heart. And when I went to Denver a couple days ago, I knew that the Rockies are using special commemorative baseballs this year at home for their 25th anniversary. So in my intro for the video outside the stadium, I talked about that and I said my goal here for the next two days is to get at least one of those balls. And... My videographer, Brandon, does a great job of getting all kinds of footage throughout the day and really telling a story in, in a beautiful, creative, and fast-paced way. So it's like I tell people, like, oh, yeah, I, you know, people ask, what are the videos about? Well, I go to stadiums and I run around and I catch balls. But, it, but it's a lot more than that. It's a lot more, you know. And there's often crazy food that I'm eating and I'm interacting with fans and players and employees and wandering around the stadium and just showing the architectural quirks, giving game updates, but we make sure not to show any live game footage. And that was, I was going to ask that because I've yeah. seen a, a lot of the videos and a lot of times it's, okay, you just got the ball and you're doing your dance or something like that. Right. And is that because of, of copyright? Yeah, it, uh, it's all a little bit murky. Um, when Bud Selig was the commissioner, I don't think that what I'm doing now would have been acceptable. There was a lot of stuff being taken down from YouTube, and MLB was super protective of everything. But I think with Rob Manfred, they realize that this is good for the game. And there's just such a drive to get everything on social media and share stuff. It's sort of like when baseball was first broadcast on TV many, many decades ago. They thought it would make people not want to go to games if they could watch it for free. But the effect that it had was that it got people excited and then they wanted to show up in person and see these guys that became larger-than-life figures in their living rooms. So that's what I think my videos are doing. I, I, I've heard from so many people, countless people, who have commented and said, your videos have made me want to go to games. And your videos have gotten me interested in baseball again. Well, that, that's the dream when you for for the for the regular Joe Schmo who goes to one to three games a year. That's their dream. They want to go to a game. They want to look at the architecture. They want to have some interesting food. They want to get a ball, and you get to do that, and you get to share that. Yeah, and a lot of people 
thank me for showing them stadiums that they know they'll never get to go to. They, they just basically say that I capture the fun and excitement of being there and they can kind of live vicariously through me. And I love hearing that. And people all the time are telling me that they've been watching my videos for, you know, a year and they finally went to a game because they might live five hours away from the nearest stadium and it's like that's their event for the years going and you know they finally got their first ball because they used all the tricks that I was talking about in the videos and thank you thank you thank you and I went with my dad and on Father's Day and it was such a touching moment and it feels so good for me to be able to share what I do and help people connect to baseball and to their favorite players so I, I think and I hope that Major League Baseball realizes that that what I do is good for the game I know that they're aware of me I have friends who are connected to Major League Baseball, the commissioner's office, and they've told me that my name has come up in meetings there, and hopefully in a positive way. So that's it's just kind of crazy what this thing has turned into. Let's talk about your home. Where do you store all the baseballs? I have most of them in storage. And I think, like I said, I've given away an awful lot of them. At this point, I give away more than I keep. I but give, you log them now. Like the first one was it the first two thousand you did not log, and now you log the balls that you get. Right. I I know the exact number of baseballs that I have from Major League Games. So 10, where is it? Ten thousand three hundred and seventy-eight. But I didn't keep track of how I got each individual ball until my two thousandth ball. Although I did handwrite a journal for years even before the two thousandth, so I I went back and reread my own entries and I saw that I'd written about games and I kind of filled in some of the blanks but starting in 1993 I had a list of every game I went to and how many balls I got at that game so it's very well documented so if most of them are in storage which ones do you keep out so that you can play show and tell or that you can look at on a day-to-day -day basis okay so the best home run balls that I've gotten I've kept separately, not in storage. And I also have one of every commemorative ball that I've snagged in a separate place as well for easy access. So th that's probably my two biggest goals at this point from a collecting standpoint is catching game home run balls and also getting commemorative balls. It's, it's describe for our audience commemorative balls. World Baseball Classic, Australia, Japan. Right. I personally, some other examples. I personally don't even... I've never been to the World Baseball Classic because I, I'm really just a Major League Baseball guy in terms of collecting balls. I've, I've never counted minor league balls or spring training. And, yeah, so the World Baseball Classic, I'm, I'm not really sure how that would fit into my collection. But I did once get a World Baseball Classic ball because I became friendly with Heath Bell, three-time All-Star closer. And he played in the World Baseball Classic and saved me a commemorative ball with the gold stamping from there and then tossed it to me at a Major League Stadium during the season. I was like, dude, I never would have been able to like count one of these balls. He's like, I know. So he That's a pinch me moment. Yeah, so that was pretty cool. But basically, opening day, there's a commemorative logo on the ball, home run derby, all-star game, postseason, World Series. If they're retiring a player's number, they might have a little player logo on the ball. And the, the ones that are the easiest to get because they're used the most are season-long commemoratives when a team is celebrating an anniversary, like this year the Rockies. Mm -hmm. They became a franchise, major league franchise in 1993, so it's their 25th anniversary. They have a logo on the ball. So all the anniversaries, 
and then the first year of a new stadium or the last year of a stadium that's closing, there's a commemorative ball for that. So this year, there are seven different major league teams using commemorative balls, and it's only about a third of the way through the season, and I've gotten four of them, so I'm, I'm off to a good start. I'm going to do my own quick little humble brag here. Do it. Uh, the 1984 Olympic baseball, I got it, I bought it at a baseball card show sometime around the late 80s. So I have it. I have it in a crate somewhere in an apartment of mine. So that's I, I think that's my mo most unique ball, the 1984 Summer Olympics baseball. I'm not even sure I've ever seen something like yeah. that. Yeah, I'll have to I'll have to dig it out and send you a photo. But if you bought it, are you allowed to brag about it? No, not really. Well, that's why it also doesn't. It's that's why it's not displayed in the office, along with all the other ridiculous random stuff that's in the office. It's just in storage. Well, I, I like ridiculous, so. That's why we're going to be friends. All right. What is the, besides the A-Rod ball that you described that you missed just before the 3,000th hit, which was a home run, what is the, the biggest whiff, the one that got away, that makes you mad at yourself? Oh, there's a few. <laughs> I was five feet away from Ken Griffey Jr.'s 600th home run in Miami, but I was about... 30 feet away from the landing spot when he hit it, so I had to try to run through a row, and I was right there in the scramble for it. That one really hurt. Um, Derek Jeter's 3,000th hit was at Yankee Stadium, and I was within just a few feet of the landing spot of that ball for his first at bat. There were a couple of empty seats all the way out, kind of in left center near the visitor's bullpen. And then people came for those seats, and I left the spot. And then in his next time up, he hit it right there. And the security guard out there was cool with me. He's like, he's like, man, you could have just stayed and stood in the back. Like, I would have been fine with that. And there was a little space where you'd almost have to side shuffle behind the last row. And I could have shuffled over and gotten in line with that ball. And if I had thought fast enough at the time had I been there to stand up on the back of the seat in the last row I could have like reached up and jumped off that seat and I would have caught it so the woulda could I mean it's like it's far-fetched but there was definitely a scenario in which I could have and would have caught his 3,000th hit and that one absolutely killed me even though I was like 200 feet away from it at the time it was hit I, I the way I see it is to get a home run during a game so many different things have to go right but to not get one, only one of those things has to go wrong. So, oh, there have been so many close calls. That one really killed me. I, I misplayed an A-Rod home run at the old stadium where he basically hit a line drive home run that I thought was heading about 15 feet to my left, and I took off running, and it had so much hook to it, and it basically curved back and landed in the exact spot where I was standing in the walkway. Like, if I just stood there, I could have reached up for a chest-high catch. I, I could have had Charlie Blackman's 100th home run last year in Cleveland if I'd been in my seat for the start of the game, but I was with someone trying to get an autograph in foul territory, and I didn't make it out in time for his first at-bat. I mean, the list goes on and on. I could drive myself crazy thinking about this. Well, I don't want to drive you too crazy, so give us your, your, most, uh, your sports center top 10 best catch, regardless of home run, batting practice, foul ball, the best catch that you made that would be number one on sports centers. Top 10. Oh, man. Um, the, well, I caught Mike Trout's first career home run, and that required a pretty good play 
although the outfield seats were completely empty because it was 108 degrees and humid in Baltimore that day. But I, I took off running to my left, and I could tell while the ball was in mid-arc that it was hit a little bit too far. So I actually put my head down and climbed back over a row to get a little farther back in the stands and then kept running and did a little sort of like jump, reach, catch at the end. Alex Blandino's first career home run earlier this year in Cincinnati, I actually climbed down over two rows of seats in the middle of a row. Again, it was pretty empty out there. That was a good catch. Um, anytime that I have to climb, I think, over seats is, is pretty fun. When I mean, I've made a lot of good catches in batting practice that no one has ever seen. Some of them actually are on YouTube now, but it's like, I guess when a ball is hit over my head and I turn away from the field, sprint up the stairs, and then cut left or right into the middle of a section, run you know 20 feet, and then turn around and it's right there. Sometimes judging the ball is is more impressive than the actual catch itself. So especially with the degree of difficulty of chairs and other humans and and, and all of that stuff in order just to get to the ball. Yeah, that's why being at sold-out stadiums is so frustrating because. I have all this energy and all this skill for judging and catching balls, but if I'm packed into one little spot, I feel like a caged animal, and they basically would have to hit a home run within like a hula hoop-sized target, and then someone still might reach up right in front of me. So I guess my advice for people out there is don't get trapped in the middle of a long row of fans if you really want to catch a ball. Try to sit on the end of a row, you know, look for the walkways, the tunnels, the standing room. Different stadiums are set up differently and they have different rules and some places they're they're fine with people wandering around a little bit and you know if you have a seat in the middle of a row and your row is empty stadium security is not going to get mad at you if you shift over 10 feet i don't want to encourage people to break the rules but you know you can be smart about it and you're not causing any problems so just sniff out the places where you have some room to maneuver tell us about the glove that you use and how you take care of this glove because players are very very temperamental about their gloves you're not supposed to put i should never put my hand in the in the glove of a player they usually have a glove for batting practice that they're breaking in they have their gamer what is your glove situation i started off as a mizuno guy then it was rawlings for a long time and now i have a wilson and it's an infielder's glove which people find peculiar because i'm always in the outfield catching fly balls why wouldn't i want to use an outfielder's glove I was a shortstop my whole life, and I like the smaller glove. I just feel like I'm much more in control. And yes, I realize I lose maybe two inches on the end of the glove, but here's my bragging. I'll make up for that with vertical leap. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but I, I do use an infielder's glove, and uh, I, I rub shaving cream into it once or twice a year, which is maybe a lesser-known way to clean it a little and to moisten it and keep it soft and in good shape. And I oil it once a year also. I when don't you fly, does it go carry-on with you in your bag, or does it go in the suitcase? That's a great question. It never leaves my possession. Okay. Where I'll, is it right now? It's in my backpack, which is a foot away from my reach right now. Okay. So, Got to yeah. protect the glove. Got to protect the glove. So that glove is has caught a lot of home runs and foul balls and BP balls. And I also use that glove on occasion when I just go out to Central Park with friends and I'm going to play catch or field some fungos. So yeah. this is a weird question considering how much your YouTube channel has been blowing up the last two years, but how long can you keep doing this? Well, 
at what point does life get in the way of having the time of your life? You know, it's funny. I always felt that baseball... Um, I, I always felt that life got in the way of baseball, right? And now I'm starting to realize that baseball is getting in the way of life. When I was a teenager, this was the only thing I liked. If I was not at a Major League Baseball game, I was bored and miserable. If my parents made me skip a game because we're going to you know, go out to dinner with you know, family or we're going to go... I, I was just so awful. I, couldn't, I just couldn't enjoy myself. I didn't have friends. I didn't have other hobbies or interests. And now, this might sound weird, but my favorite time of the year is when there's no baseball. And I feel like that's when I am most me. And I can do all the other things, and I eat better, and I exercise more, and I have friends, and I have a girlfriend and family, and I can go help out at the bookstore even if I don't need to do it financially. It's just nice to be with family and, and kind of chill out there. So... Yeah, there's, I mean, I read every box score every day, and even when a video is done and I'm posting it, it can take an hour or two to choose a thumbnail and a title and write all the tags and write the description and pimp it on social media. I mean, it's, it's so much work, and I spend one to six hours a day probably answering emails that are all baseball-related, mostly from people I've never met and will never meet. And I have sponsors, and I have people constantly asking me for stuff and for advice. And I don't mean to complain, because it's amazing to be in this situation. But it's, it's kind of overwhelming, and I, I can't even keep up with 90% of all the emails, comments on YouTube, and Twitter, and Instagram, and everything else. It's like, it, it's amazing how big this has gotten. It's a job. Yeah, it, well, it is a job. As, as much as I was laughing at the beginning and, and having poking some fun, it's a job. Yeah. Um, I, it's, uh, it's really... It's a dream I, job I, in a I lot of like, ways, but it's a job. I feel like it's the best job in the world. I mean, maybe second only to being a Major League Baseball player. No, it's actually number one is being a minor league baseball play-by-play announcer. Number two is oh, being okay. a major league baseball player, and number three is catching baseballs at major league and minor league games. Okay, so you're, that, si- you're saying your job is better than my job? Yeah, I got the gold medal. Wow, I got okay. the gold medal. Well, I'm I'm glad you enjoy it so much. <laughs> um, I mean, look at this view. Yes. On a podcast, people are going, "Yeah, we can't see anything," but you you can look at this view. You must get some foul balls up here, huh? Not one. We actually had one in the control booth yesterday. Well, I, I have not had one here. I mean, so we are, for the people listening at home, we are slightly shaded to the side of home plate, barely on the third base side of home plate, but we're, we're nearly just looking like right up the middle, and foul balls don't usually fly straight back. So when I said you must get foul balls up here, I didn't mean like this specific booth that we're sitting in, but... Yeah, the control booth uh, yesterday, yeah. one went flying right in there. Yeah, I'm sure. They get about one a year. I'm 0 for six years mm. in this specific you'll, location. You'll get, maybe tonight is the night. Maybe tonight. I just hope that I, that I hope that it doesn't break the TV and it doesn't break the equipment. That's all I, I mean, care about. Why? You don't have to pay for it. Uh, I still don't. I want to be on the air. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to go off the air because of a foul ball. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. All right. Um, your charity. Tell us about your charity and if people want to be involved with it, how they can be involved with it. It's called Pitch In for Baseball, and they provide baseball and softball equipment to communities that need it, mostly for kids. 
And, you know, if there's a natural disaster, a hurricane, a flood that wipes out the entire equipment shed for a little league, and suddenly there's no, there's no balls and gloves and uniforms because it all gets damaged, the charity will step in and, and send a whole lot of new stuff. Um, or if they're just really impoverished communities that can't afford equipment, even in war-torn countries, they've, they've donated equipment all over the world. You know, even in, in Japan when there was, you know, natural disasters there. So it's a global charity, but they're not that huge. So the money really helps. But they do work with MLB. They're an official partner of Little League. Roy Smalley Jr., former major leaguers, on their board of directors. So they have some clout, but they can definitely use the help. And so every year for the last, well, this is the 10th year that I've been doing it, I've done my own fundraiser for them where... People pledge money for every baseball that I snag over the course of the season. And they don't actually get the baseballs themselves. It's just a way to kind of keep track of the money and, and add up the funds. Sort of like how someone will run a marathon and get their friends to pledge a dollar for every mile. So I've raised over $200,000 for this charity. A large part of that was the A-Rod Ball. It was also sponsored by Biggs Sunflower Seeds in 2013. And... They sent me to all 30 stadiums and made sort of a challenge of snagging game balls in and, and all the stadiums and f to donate to the charity. So Biggs donated $15,000 that year, and I've also raised a lot on my own with everybody's help. And uh, it's just a great organization, and I've gotten to know the, the people who run it, and I've been to their warehouse in Pennsylvania where it's, it's pretty cool to just see like a huge you know, warehouse with ceilings that are 30 feet high with all this equipment is just ready to be boxed up and, and sent off. So if people want to donate directly, they can go to PIFB.org. That's for pitchinforbaseball.org. Or they can search my specific fundraiser. If you just search my name and add the word charity, you'll probably find it. I've started giving away prizes every year as an incentive to get people to donate. So I have 10 prizes this year one of which is a custom Wilson glove, which is worth hundreds of dollars. And basically, the more money you donate, the more times you get your name thrown in the hat at the end, and then I randomly pick winners. And so not everybody wins something, but you know, there's a lot of cool stuff to be won, and I love it. It's just amazing that my dweeby hobby of running around catching balls has turned into this. It can raise all this money for charity, help kids play ball, get people excited about baseball because the baseball world has given me so much and it feels amazing to be able to give something back. So that's just kind of where I am with it. We mentioned earlier your Ripken-esque streak of getting at least one ball every time you go to the game. If you ever got shut out, what would happen? I would probably cry. Would you retire? <laughs> no. But you would cry? Probably. Um... So, in a weird way, I almost feel like a burden would be lifted off me if I got shut out. Because there are times when maybe I don't have a ball and I'm, I'm going to lurk near foul territory because it's easier to get a toss-up when I would prefer to just be sitting in the outfield and catch a home run, but it's like, I got to get that one ball. So I definitely changed my approach to preserve the streak. Is that cheap? I don't know. It's, is it sort of like a guy bunting for a base hit in a blowout because he wants to bat 300 on the last day of the season. I don't know. Like, Streak's a streak. you got to yeah, respect the streak. I mean, I, I can't let it die but at this point. But streaks are also but, made to be broken. 
Yeah, I, I mean, the streak is definitely going to end, and I, I feel like a big reason for that is that I've created a ton of competition for myself by sharing all of my strategies and getting so many people out there, especially kids, fired up about going to games. You know, one of the tricks that I came up with years ago in 1992, I'll tell you this quick story. The Atlanta Braves were in New York, Shea Stadium, David Justice, right field on the Braves, was shagging baseballs in right field. And I used to be a Mets fan. At this point, I don't identify with any one team. I'm just a baseball fan. But I proudly ran into the stadium with my Mets jacket, shouted at him for a ball, and he turned to throw it to me and stopped mid-motion and said, I'm not going to throw you a ball if you're wearing a Mets jacket. And I thought, oh my God, am I stupid. You know, 14-year-old me. So the next day... I took off my Mets jacket before running out to right field, so I was dressed neutrally, asked him for a ball, and he turned and threw it to me without a second thought. So I was like, oh, that makes sense. So fast forward a bit, it occurred to me that if I actually acquired baseball caps of these various visiting teams, and I put on the caps and I dressed up like I was a fan of them, that it might help me get even more baseballs. And sure enough, that worked out. Got a ton of toss-ups. I was the only one that doing that at that point. Now, you know, when you see the home team jog off the field and the visitors come out, if you look around, you'll see a dozen kids like taking off their home team gear, putting on the visiting team <laughs> gear, and it's like, oh my God, what have I created? <laughs> so it's now really tough for me to get toss-ups because anybody younger than me is going to get the ball over me. Like, yeah, there's another point where it's like, okay, you were the cute kid at one point, and now... I was never that cute. Okay, well, you were a kid. Okay. And now you're not a kid, and now there's a bunch of other cute kids around you. And at a certain point, you're no longer the cute kid. You're just, you're just the, you know, you're just the dude. I am the least desirable demographic for getting a toss-up, because ladies get a lot of toss-ups. I mean, if you were a player, wouldn't you rather throw a ball to a, a nice-looking woman mm -hmm. in the stands? For sure, for sure. Little kids get a million toss-ups, and that's great. I'm glad. And you know, even old people. Somebody with gray hair, it's like, hey, toss. I mean, like, they're going to get balls, too. So if you're my age and you're male, it's tough. But I still find a way. As we start to wrap up here, what is a misconception that you would like to clear up? You said that, oh, you know, he elbows kids and pushes them out of the way, and you said, I don't really do that. What's a misconception, whether it's that or something else you want to clear up? Thank you for asking. That's probably the big one. Um, there's a perception in general that ball hawks, people who you know do this a lot and run around and catch balls, are aggressive and knock people down. And I would actually argue that it's the people who've never gotten a ball that you have to watch out for. Because for them it's a once in a lifetime opportunity and they will do whatever it takes. I personally have been accused so many times of knocking people down and I've never done it once. I've been to more than 1,600 games, and I've never knocked anyone down, young or old. Um, I'm so careful of my surroundings. Every single pitch, whether it's BP or the game, I'm looking left, I'm looking right. Is my row clear? I'm looking behind me on the stairs. Is a vendor creeping down? Is the guard in the way? Because I just I want to have a clear route to the ball in case they hit one, and I don't want to bump into anyone. So I would just say that you know, I, I respect the game and I respect people as much as anyone. And this is a very, very positive hobby. And it's just super fun. It helps me stay in shape. And I get exercise. I get out there. I travel. I, I've made so many friends. And 
I just try not to be a jerk in the process of running around and having my fun. What's left on the bucket list? Where have you not gotten a ball or what unique location have you not gotten a ball that you still need to check off? I've been to all 30 current Major League stadiums. Do you get a ball at McCovey Cove in the water? Have you got a splash hit? I have not. I've gotten some baseballs on the port walk, which is that walkway yeah. outside the perimeter of the stadium, between the stadium and the water. I know one of the regulars out there, McCovey Cove Dave, who's gotten many, many home run balls in the water, and he's told me that he has an extra kayak and a wetsuit for me whenever I'm ready. Last year, we were going to do it. We picked a date when I was going to be out there. It turned out that Madison Bumgarner was pitching. <laughs> A lefty, of course, which means that everybody was going to bat right-handed, which means there aren't going to be balls flying that deep to right field. And it was very cold, so we, we postponed. But at some point, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get out there. Even just snagging a, a batting practice ball in the water would be a lot of fun. That should be a, a cool video for YouTube. Um, since I have been to every current Major League Stadium, at this point, I just love going anywhere else that Major League Baseball plays. So I was recently in Monterrey, Mexico for that series between the Dodgers and Padres. I was there for the combined no-hitter. That was fun. I snagged 20 balls one day, mostly during batting practice. And I've been to Australia when the Dodgers and Diamondbacks opened the 2014 season, the Tokyo Dome in 2012, which was the Athletics and the Mariners. So, you know, I'm already looking forward to London next year. Red Sox, Yankees, end of June. So, I mean, if Major League Baseball were playing on Mars, I would find a way to get there. <laughs> I'm all about the different venues, and I've snagged at least one ball at every different stadium that I've been to, so I've got to keep that streak alive also. All right, Zach. We'll leave it there. That's a great way to end it. Congratulations. Welcome to Albuquerque. Thanks for your time, and I really hope you do not get shut out here at Isotopes Park. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. This is Life Around the Seams. <laughs>